Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guests on today's show are David Barron and Kazuhiko Shibata, co-founders of Symphony Financial Partners, a 20-year-old Asia-based manager of $1.3 billion in assets. Symphony focuses on deeply undervalued companies in Japan with a long bias, constructive engagement strategy that works closely alongside willing management teams to see intrinsic value reflected in the share price. Our conversation covers their early careers in Japan, the country's employee-first, shareholder-last culture, the resulting disconnect of corporate activity and share price, and the formation of Symphony to invest in the few companies willing to close the gap over time. 
We then walk through their investment process, including the challenges of taking advantage of what appears incredible value on paper, offering friendly advice as a key component of due diligence, conducting research, and structuring portfolios. We close with a discussion of corporate governance and the necessity of a long-term perspective to thrive in Japan. Please enjoy my conversation with David Barron and Kazuhiko Shibata. David Shibata-san, thank you so much for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Good to see you. So David, why don't you take me back to the beginning and how in the world you got to Japan? That beginning? Wow. Actually, I got to Japan from the family moved here. I was at Loyola in Los Angeles as a film major, and my father came to Japan to work for McCann Erickson Hakuhodo as a producer. This was 1981, and Loyola had a reciprocal relationship with Sophia, being Jesuits. So I arrived summer of 81, and I would say I've been here continuously since then. I went to Sophia for a year and a half, then went back to, to finish up my degree. Cal was very flush with Japan experts, and that got me straight to Columbia, almost segued from one to the other, which of course elevated the level, because my professors at Columbia in the grad school, Hugh Patrick and Jerry Curtis, and all the people who have deep tentacles into Japanese politics and business. So when I graduated, boarded a plane for Tokyo and sat down at the desk at Shirsen Lehman Hutton, I think, right when Nippon Life purchased a stake in the company. And that was the start of everything. How did you experience Japan back in the 80s? Japan in the 80s, it was the bubble economy. Everything was very go-go. Money was sloshing around. Real estate was going through the roof. The stock market was going through the roof. And was going through the roof in kind of all the wrong ways because people were borrowing to, against their real estate to buy stocks and borrowing against their stocks to buy more stocks. It was all kind of a recipe for disaster, which of course, when they burst the bubble, that's what happened. But the markets where I operated in arbitrage and futures and whatnot, they made no sense. And Japan was economically very powerful, number two to the US. There was a lot of catering to Japanese financial institutions by U.S. financial institutions. There was quite a bit of fear amongst U.S. institutions and corporations, you know, makers, guys who make car makers, agriculture and whatnot. You know, how are we going to defend against the onslaught of you know, Japanese financial power coming into the United States and buying everything? Rockefeller Center. It was a strangely friendly yet adversarial relationship. It was like you never could quite figure out. Are we working together? Are we working against each other? I was at Lehman. Obviously, the big relationship was Nippon Life. And as an employee, we're like, so do we work for Nippon Life? Are they partners? Or what are we doing? And we always have Nippon Life guys in the office and training them. and whatnot. So it permeated kind of all parts of both business and social activity. You're an expat here in Tokyo, you've got your job and then you've got your social life and you're sort of in and out of regular society. But 
you very much knew you were a guest. And the expectation was that you were not permanent. You were going to be there for three years or five years and then you're gone. So it doesn't really matter. Surprise, surprise. That was in the 80s. So when we went through the bubble and then sort of came out of it, there was a lot of soul searching going on in Japan. And that didn't really happen until the mid 90s. You know, the bubble burst in 89, 91. And you realized how weak the banks were. And the banks realized how weak they were. And the government said, shit, we've got to do some consolidation. We've got to clean up all these balance sheets. That was the real stake in the heart for Japan as number one kind of mentality. As you kind of worked through that, you were able to understand that the ineffectiveness of the stock market to be a place for discovery of value. The stock market was not the arbiter of price. Trust banks trading or insurance companies trading around had nothing to do with what's this company worth. And that really was kind of the start of the realization, I think, for Japanese regulators to understand, hey, we've got a real problem with the pension funds. Well, since pension funds own all this stock and they're levered into it, and they're just making the wrong bets. So as pension funds started to blow up, now into probably the late 90s, early 2000s, and, you know, you've got another crash. You know, you got the Asian financial crisis in 97, and you're watching all these things bounce around, and Japanese pension funds are just wildly undercapitalized. You got to this period, the government drew a line in the sand and said, okay, we can't have you guys going bankrupt anymore because we're going to have to pay for it anyway. So instead of you managing the money, why don't you give us the liabilities and we'll manage the money? And that was really the beginning of the end. <laughs> because for some God unknown reason, the government said, we don't want to take your assets, we'll take your cash. So everything was converted into cash and there was no price sensitivity at all. I want to turn over to Shibata-san and would love your perspective as a local through that time and some of the things that David said about the history of what happened in Japan from early in your career. I joined Nomura Securities 1982, graduated Hitotsubashi University. And I was assigned to bond trading department. And then Nomura has a scholarship program, which will send young employees to overseas schools, like Harvard or Yale. And I was chosen. Even though I wanted to go to MBA course, I was chosen to go to Harvard Law School. And at that time, Japan, students coming from Japan is the largest group that's just booming. Even small regional bank send students to have a law school. Amazing. I graduated class of 86. And I happened to be a first Harvard Law School graduate and the first New York lawyer in Nomura's history. So I was supposed to back bond trading department, but I was assigned to corporate planning department where to consider Nomura's strategy. Once I returned to Japan, 
because of my background of international negotiation, I was assigned to a department where Nomura advising Japanese corporation, which wants to develop their business outside of Japan. And naturally, I led a deal. I will negotiate on behalf of the client. And so that my background is always advising Japanese management first, Nomura's management, then Nomura's client management. Don't forget, you were the one prepping management on all those shareholder meetings, Nomura management, to make sure that they were ready for whatever dastardly conversations took place. 1986 to 1990, there is a professional shareholder. And we need to protect the management so that, well, we practice how to run AGM, how to answer any question. I came to understand all the tricks of shareholders meeting and shareholders right during that time. So David, you roll forward. You've been through this bubble. You've been through this bust. What was the impetus for starting Symphony? Well, it first started, obviously, I'd spent a lot of time doing arbitrage, buying cash, selling futures or options arbitrage. So things kind of made perfect sense. I'm going to buy one asset and sell another, and I'm going to make an expected return. And in that process, I was requested to do a lot of basket pricing and things like that, and noticed that there are some companies trading at a discount to cash, which I couldn't understand. I get the arbitrage thing, but how could the stock market allow real operating business to trade at a discount to cash? that, That can't be right. I mean, if I step back and just do this simple math, discount to cash, I buy the company, and I give her the cash to myself, and I have an operating business. And you guys can keep the operating business, I'll keep the cash. Pretty basic stuff. And this was not like phantom cash or things that were tax maneuvers or any kind of accounting. It was cash sitting in a bank or as a portfolio of securities. So I spent quite a number of years actually trying to understand both how and why the stock market was discounting so many of these companies. And there were literally hundreds of them and why nothing was being done about it and why doesn't this happen and it got me thinking that the long-term investment in deep value names in Japan probably is the best place to put your money I don't want to trade stocks I want to buy the whole business because if I can buy the business for for the cash on the balance sheet you know they're giving it to me why wouldn't I want an operating business and that sort of got me and Shibata-san together because when we met, he was working at Nomura and we were across the table from each other working on a transaction. And, you know, it was kind of an interesting transaction. It was kind of a small property developer who was having trouble. And, you know, I was working for a U.S. hedge fund and you know, we were like, well, we should buy this company and we can take these net loss carry forwards and convert it into a backdoor REIT. And remember, this is... 95, 96. So, like, nobody knew what the hell a Japanese REIT was. This would be a REIT with already losses in it. So, it's like perfect. It's like $50 million of free money. So, as we started looking at this, he and I talked about a number of other 
opportunities in the marketplace and you know what was going on and somewhat perversely I was the Japanese equity guy and he was the, the banker so in the fullness of time we started looking at and talking about different things it's like well, why don't we just buy these for ourselves I can tell you what we need to buy you figure out how to close it and let's go do it so it took a while to pry Shibatsan out of Nomura I mean you were at the time let's say we started you had been there like 16 years and then it took another two years to get out of there and the objective at the time was look these are companies we want to own for ourselves good businesses we don't want to fix businesses we don't we don't know how to make anything we're comfortable in that position like, okay but we understand that somebody's selling your stock at a discount to cash somebody's trading and whether it's as we said before the pension funds dumping or not it doesn't matter nobody cares what you do nobody cares about your operating business you're just not a sexy name you're not interesting you're not in cloud services or electric vehicles or whatever it was at the time that would have caught everybody's attention you're a nice boring business that's just a cash cow and you have nothing else to do with your cash it's like ooh, well, that sounds like exactly what we want to own for ourselves shibata sun let me ask in the 80s when japan was in this very bull time there was a very consistent notion of lifetime employment. And I'm curious, after 18 years at Nomura, how contrarian was it for you to leave to join an investment fund? Well, the things I was shocked at Harvard Law School to learn is that, well, the company belonged to shareholders. That's what I was told at Harvard Law School. But when I went back to Japan, company belonged to employees. I work for Nomura. And joining a company means joining a society, community. You will belong there forever. So you will have a party within the department or among the company or exercise, baseball game, and so on. So you are closely tied up. It's community and management. They are not coming from outside. They are one of us. So that's from management viewpoint, employees, my friend, my colleagues, my junior. So it's pretty tough for, for example, Japanese management that you will get golden parachute and will buy your company and fire everybody. That's not acceptable to most of Japanese because they are my friend. I'll be ashamed in a community. So buying Japanese company is not that easy because of that concept. If you're a corporate radar, especially to employee or management, people will oppose you. Shareholder is lowest ranked in Japan. I should say past tense, not current tense. Shareholder was the lowest ranked. Employee, client, so the total stakeholder, shareholder is bottom. That has been a long time concept, or Japanese community. 
getting out of a community and going to be rich, you'll be kicked out. So that's, well, once I left Nomura, people were, my colleagues or friends, I thought, communicate less and less. So what was it that drove you to make that change? Nomura has been giving me an opportunity to expand my ability. For example, after learning at a law school, that does not make you a real lawyer. By going through a period of negotiation and documentation and fighting with the lawyers, you will become better investment banker. If I stay with Nomura, I will be a real estate guy. That's not what I want to do. So that's a year 2000, I say. And Nomura cannot provide me any exciting opportunity where I can develop my ability. Okay, I will quit. David, when you started in 2000, this notion of super cheap companies trading at a cash on the balance sheet combined with, as Shabbat-Dasad described, a Japanese corporate culture that puts the shareholder last. What happened when those two things came together? The symphony happened, literally, because we realized that the forces that drive the company and the forces that drive the stock market are two completely alien concepts. Management's good, the company is good, share price is bad. And management would be like, well, we're not in charge of the share price because we don't trade stock. So we realized that while anybody doing their financial gymnastics and saying, well, I can buy this company and do it, no, you can't. I mean, it's trading there, but you can't buy it. And that concept for people is like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, yeah, you can, you can buy $50,000 worth of stock or $100,000, but you can't buy the company there. And there's no real mechanism by which you can go into the market, buy it, and then be able to get that arbitrage. So what we realized was that despite the mispricings, the only way to actually profit from it was to work with the company to get the pricing of the shares to more accurately reflect the value of the company. And in the absence of a, what's called, unregulated, unfettered market for corporate control, that is a very difficult concept to impose upon a management team that's never had to deal with the stock market. They're like, why do we care about shareholders? I said, well, because it's not really about shareholders. I mean, it's about you. Then why are you listed? You listed, and when you did that, when you took that action, unlike in the US or in Europe where I'm listing because I need a liquidity event or I need to raise cash, that's generally not the case for the large majority of the cheap companies. They're listed as some kind of legacy. They may retain the cash they got when they IPO because they got nothing to do with it. So there was kind of this strange mystery as to why you're listed. So when you put those two together, then you have a dialogue that becomes, hmm, well, why wouldn't we be listed? I get to be a member of the, the Lions Club as the president, or I get this prestige, or you know, they'd always use some nonsense. We get better bank financing being listed. I mean, all these things are like, well, yeah, you get better bank financing, but you're 130% net cash to market cap. Why are you borrowing money? None of these things really made sense, although the arguments were tried and true. So 
merging these two concepts, very difficult, I think, for a lot of either all Japanese teams to understand or all Western teams to understand. When you look at this landscape on paper at the time, it probably felt like shooting fish in a barrel. But as you said, most of these companies had this big disconnect. How did you go about figuring out which ones you could work with to try to extract some of the value from the business? Willie Loman. Literally, it was the Willie Loman strategy. We filled up our backpacks with our laptops, put on our best loafers, got some power bars. What were we eating back then? Uh, calorie mates. And we'd get on the train and we'd go to Osaka, we'd go to Nagoya, and we'd meet and meet and meet and meet. Every day we'd be traveling around the country trying to meet with these management teams to try and understand what the hell's going on. Because, I mean, none of this is on the balance sheet or the income statement. There's some reason, and trust me, there is a reason why the company is cheap. And it may be that management doesn't want any more shareholders. It may be that they don't have an IR department so they wouldn't even know what to do. There's always some kind of anecdotal story as to why a particular company trades at the really wrong price. Underneath the overall umbrella that, well, it doesn't need to be listed. <laughs> so we found companies through just hard work. You can screen for cheap all day because that's a calculation. And actually when we started, one of the things that we found ourselves doing a lot and it somewhat became a tagline for us was balance sheet forensics. And it's not because the Japanese were hiding anything. It's the rules for how you mark things and disclose things were very different. For example, you didn't have to mark to market your securities portfolio. So these companies had massive amounts of stock that had gone up five times from when they bought it 50 years ago. It was on their book at acquisition costs. Or real estate. Even now, if you're not a real estate company, you don't have to mark it up. But they could have owned real estate, and the chauffeur, which owned real estate next to Nintendo. They had it on their book at, I think it was like $2 million. And it was worth like $200 million. And you're like, well, why don't you mark it up? I'm like, why would we do that? It's the whole mindset of what do you need to disclose? Why do you need to disclose it? As I said, some of it is actual Japanese tax code and corporate code didn't require you to do it. Now, they've worked through all of that for the most part, but we would go to City Hall and pull the land registrations based upon the company's 10 Qs or whatever it would be in Japan and rebuild what their actual balance sheet was. Like, this is insane. Why don't you do this? You know, you're sitting on a billion dollars worth of real estate. Yeah, but, you know, we don't really need it. I said, yeah, but we're the shareholder and we need it. <laughs> so getting there was a harder challenge. Now, around that time in the early noughts, you had this really first wave of U.S. activists coming into Japan. And there were some local ones as well. What happened with that wave? Yeah, it was a bit of a bloodbath. We knew both some of the companies that those guys were going after personally, and obviously we knew the actors. And there was definitely a belief amongst the activists that, well, it's listed, so we're just going to go in and take it. 
and that was met with a backlash that they were pretty much unprepared for and it came from all sides first it started out it's like oh it's Commodore Perry coming again it's like nah, it's not foreign it's like foreign and domestic and the ugliest ones were of course domestic the ugliest battles but the business culture and, and you know society was not ready for the kind of hostility and just pure greed that it looked like in these transactions and we all know who the players were and you know the math is pretty easy my job as a fund manager is to buy things cheap and sell them dear and make money for my my investors or my beneficiaries and whether that a pension fund or whatnot that's my job that assets too cheap I want to go buy it of course the people guarding those assets thought it was theirs and they were much more concerned with the ongoing concern issues as opposed to the balance sheet issues there was a huge disconnect between who owns a company and what that means in terms of who owns the assets and who they're supposed to be working for. Are they supposed to be working for the employees and the clients or are they supposed to be working for the shareholders? And it was a little too early and all of those guys got blown out. And I was recently having a conversation trying to reflect upon Symphony's almost 20-year history now, more than that. And we're like, we've been doing this a long time. Where is everybody else from the knots? Where'd they go? <laughs> like, what are they doing? And we always envisioned what we do as a career as opposed to a trade. Each transaction may look like an interesting trade. Oh, we'll buy this and flip it and do that. But there's decades worth of companies that are trading at one time or another inappropriate valuations for where a full enterprise buyer would pay. And that's how we always looked at it. It's like, well, when there's a real market for control here, wouldn't some of these companies be better private or as divisions of something else or as subsidiaries of something else? And if you think about where going from triple net cash companies to just companies that are be better off somewhere else, the history of doing that, like in the U.S., you know, it started in, you know, the 70s. It went on, it's still going on. Acquisitions are a part of life. So, you know, we looked at it and said, this is going to take a long, long time before you get a real market for corporate control. And it's going to take a long time to digest all the companies that could be digested even after that's understood. So let's not play the hostile game and have people against us. Let's play the cooperative game and have people working with us. So Shabbat Dasan, when you had that approach back then, I guess the key question is, why are you guys still standing when the others have gone away? Well, the due diligence is assess the management. See if they are willing to co-work with us. You know, based on my experience advising Japanese corporation, couple of meetings will tell us that whether or not they are willing to co-work with us. Once we identify the manager before investing, we'll start working, giving free advice, and I'm trying to be on their side, not the other side of a table and banging a table. That's not our way. We are always trying to be there 
advisor for free. You don't have IR department? Okay. Said, I will talk to the president and encourage him to have IR department. Well, if you don't know how to do the IR, then we will tell you the analyst meetings to how to invite people and how to set up the uh, conference and so on. So that we try to be on their side and giving free advice and try to be a team. So naturally they will come to us that we face this problem. Our job is to improve their governance, their financial aspect. And by giving these advice, we come to realize why they are under barrier. If they are listed on the TSE second section, we encourage them to go to TSE first section. Or they don't see any merit of being listed. Why you are listed? My grandfather was recommended by Nomura in order to prove you are successful businessman. You need to list. That's a reason. We don't have any merit. We are paying five million US dollars in order to maintain our listing. Okay. Why don't we delist? And we encourage them to delist and management buy out. Actually, we are the first the hedge fund who sponsored management buyout. Central Uni is the name of the company. We, together with uh, founding family, we created the limited partner in Japan and limited partner on 40% and management uh, founding family on 20% so that we, together we control two thirds. And I become CFO and change the corporation and so on. We did all the work to revive that company. David, is, there have been so many fits and starts over the last 20 years of the perception that governance in Japan was changing. Where are we today? Fits and starts is a good way to describe it because it has these lurches forward. Trying to lump it all together, saying it's universally moving this way or universally moving that way, probably does a disservice to both the people who are doing a good job and the ones who are doing a bad job. I think there are some companies that have really taken it to heart. And let's say what I mean by it is considering shareholders' return in how they manage the company and the listing. By and large, you know, whether it's ESG or governance in and of itself, there are things that maybe the Japanese do better than the West. Executive pay, stock options, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, big question mark. Should we be worrying about this quarter's earnings or this decade's earnings? I think some of the transparency issues have gotten better across the board. I think there's still a little bit of cloak and dagger stuff going on. But the general direction has been positive. It's being created as, you know, we said this 20 years ago. This is not a CalPERS, CalSTRS, Hermes problem. This is a Japanese pension fund problem that the Japanese have to decide for themselves to start paying their beneficiaries properly. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it better governance. It doesn't matter. The companies are generally just not being managed in a way that rewards their shareholders. 
and the ones who are losing the most were Japanese pensioners. So once they got to the point where, wow, we really need to fix this for ourselves. Forget about what Ackman and Dan Lowe said. It doesn't matter about them. It matters that we can fund this massive pension liability for our aging population. They've kind of figured that out. But the money's there. There's trillions of dollars sitting on Japanese balance sheets that are owned by Japanese pensioners who need the money. <laughs> so they've gotten to that point. Like I said, talking about governance in a specific sense is not as effective as talking about it as, what's it for? You know, the general sense of good governance is to ensure that companies aren't generally run into the ground through malfeasance and also shareholders are appropriately advised of, appraised of, and compensated for their ownership. And that has made a very substantial sea change in direction in Japan over the past really 15 years, not five. It's a pretty positive general direction. Nothing's a straight line. As you look at the trends in place, both for governance, for the pension system, and the pricing of stocks, how have you taken all of that information and gone about turning it into a portfolio to invest? You have a combination of what's the mispricing, how big is the mispricing, then of course you have the issue of well, what's the general moat around the business? I mean, is it a protected business? And then, of course, it's a, well, you know, what kind of management team is running this company? And do they have the wherewithal, the capacity, the desire to do something about their share price? And the truth of the matter is we come to many companies where the answer is no. <laughs> they don't. All the other things work, and management's just like, eh, eh. So companies we like that have that, let's call it flawed or inappropriate management team for what we want to do, we put them to the side and wait for that management team to transition in one way or another. <laughs> Just okay, you're not going to be there forever. We may not be here forever either, but when you change, you've got all the right components to be worth two or three times what you're trading at. The ones that do have the right management team, then we start to engage them and try to understand how malleable they are, how much we can really kind of massage them into understanding the two-way nature of being listed. There's a give and a take, and do you want to be listed or don't you want to be listed? And then you start talking about, well, yeah, we don't really want to be listed. Okay, then there are some interesting opportunities we can help you pursue. We do want to be listed and we want to go buy other companies because we want to be bigger. Okay. So once you're at that point, which I kid you not, I don't think we've ever gotten to that point without like six months of visiting the company, maybe a year. It's not about what does the company do and what are their profit margins and what are their prospects. That's the easier thing to figure out. It's who's running the company, who's got their hands on the pulse. And are these the right people to work with? Well, Shibata-san, how accessible are these management teams to figuring that out? Company by company. It's pretty tough to generalize. You need to go visit and talk to them and sometimes have dinner and sometimes 
visit their factories and demonstrate that we are serious and we are not short-time investor, we are long-time investor. By eight, close to 20 years experience in this industry, we are well-known among Japanese corporations. And if they don't know about us, they will ask around and come up with our previous portfolio companies management. How was Symphony? Oh, they helped us. But that makes us very accessible to Japanese corporation. And they sometimes easily open up their mind. Usually it's harder to get into and be an insider. But because of our past experience and good story about us, President will show up at the first meeting and start talking about his problems. So a friendly approach, always open the door. And if you are hostile guy, door will shut down and you couldn't get any information to invest. Still that's true in Japanese corporations. So as you develop this conviction in a certain company, how do you go about both the decision process to first invest and then scaling into a position in, in what, in some cases, are relatively liquid names? Our due diligence process is like private equity fund approach. First, uh, well, the analysts come up with financial analysis and say, this is cheap company and good companies. Then, at well, the investment call, if everybody say, okay, this is a good company, I will make sure that I will involve every company business. And we'll see. And if first impression is, this is not the company, this is not the right management or something, then we'll skip. And if we are interested, oh, this looks familiar and does seem to better company, we'll ask next visit. For example, factory visit or talking to the president. And then we'll start talking to their client, competitor, and in a process that we try to identify who will be a potential buyer of this company. Is a management hate to be listed? That's a management buyout could be an exit, one exit. If there is only one exit option, we'll move next one. We want to have a couple of exit options. Who is a strategic buyer? Okay, this company and that company could be a strategic buyer. Okay, this company will go to TSC first section and will be very evaluated and covered by ends. If these are the options we have and we assess that management is calling to us, then only at that time we decided to invest. I think it's that's what Shmutson is saying here is crucial and it's why we're still doing this after 20 years. Because thinking about getting out is way more important than thinking about getting in. I can give you 150 cheap names that you can buy, but once you've bought them, it's like, okay, what causes the share price to go up and you get out? That's your job. Your job is not to find cheap stocks. Your job is to find cheap stocks and sell them expensive. So getting the second half of the transaction is where the guys who came in early just assume, well, the market's rational and therefore it will pay me the price. And it's like, no, that's actually, if it was rational, you wouldn't be buying it at the cheap price. 
So you have to recognize that the definition of this irrational market is why you're here. Your presence, your aura doesn't make it rational. <laughs> Somebody else was selling it. They're probably pretty smart too. So you have to do something else. You have to add something to it. And so what does that portfolio look like when you put it together? From a portfolio management perspective, it's a completely bottom-up portfolio of companies that excel in their field, whatever they're doing, have Teflon balance sheets, generally have zero debt, it's usually negative net debt, have a moat around their business. Sometimes there are more than one company in a similar industry, like healthcare. For a very long time, we've had two or three companies in healthcare because they were very cheap, maybe chemicals, one or two, but there's not a whole lot of industry concentration by number of companies. Again, because it's so bottom up. There's usually 12 to 15 names in the portfolio in various degrees of progress. Right now, we've probably got three or four that are well advanced and we're doing a lot with management. We're pretty happy with what's going on. Maybe one that we might consider exiting for the right price. There are six names where we're building positions. We tend to have 5% cash in the portfolio, somewhat opportunistically. We never lever. We're a terrible prime brokerage client. We don't short and we don't borrow money. You're like, why do you have a PB account again? Well, because we have currency swaps. So you need to have an ISDA agreement. If you need an ISDA agreement, you can't have a regular account. So thinking about the portfolio, we have 12 to 15 super cheap names. Certainly when we buy them, hopefully they get less cheap over time. We have a plan for each company at some point in time. The plan may have multiple options, optionality going to get out. Relationships with many of the presidents of all the companies. And the timeline for each name is a little less important to us. Some of these things just take time. And some companies have, in a very Peter Lynch kind of way, I mean, they've evolved. I mean, we know so much about the company, but we watch them change and respond to the business environment in such positive ways. We're like, well, why would we sell this? I mean, they're doing exactly what they should be doing. If we owned 100% of the company, we'd be happy. So the fact that we own 10, 15, 20%, it was like, okay, we're not going to sell it and replace it. I always found it very interesting where people would poo-poo Japanese companies and say, oh, you know, their return on investment is so slow, their margins are so bad. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. We own companies that have like 60% heavy down margins. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to find that in the U.S. market. And they're making money. They're profitable. So I think overall the portfolio is a tight, concentrated portfolio that someone from the outside looking at it would say, wow, it's a concentrated portfolio of a lot of names that don't trade much on the exchange. We're like, yeah, that's the opportunity. If you think something that trades $10 million a day is going to be mispriced, your own arrogance is just too big. Why don't you walk through an example, maybe a stereotypical example, it could be a past portfolio company, it could be something in the portfolio of just soup to nuts, how you found it, the state of the company, valuation, and what's happened. Nago is a company, one of our long-term favorites. 
they make temporary shelters, you know, kind of trailer-like offices that you rent to put on a construction site or maybe use it as a temporary storage, temporary housing in an earthquake or other natural disaster. Relatively high spec. An average unit is about $3,000. The company makes them, rents them, and refurbishes them, and then resells them. The interesting thing about this company was when we found it, they were trading at a discount to the value of the units that they owned. If the company at the time said, we're going to sell all the units and take the cash and dividend it out, it would have been an 8x. So we were like, wait, wait, this can't be right. And of course, going back to our balance sheet forensics conversation, they had depreciated all of the units. You know, it's a seven-year depreciation cycle. They were all depreciated to zero. But they had a market resale value of $3,000. There's a robust market in the reselling of these things. And the company controlled that market. So we're like, okay, so you've got eight times your market cap in units. And this was in the midst of a depression in the construction industry. So after we met with the brothers who owned the company, cousins, Takahashi, they were third generation. And the first thing that was interesting to me, at least, is they were like, well, you know, it's not a very interesting business, but it makes really good money. And I was kind of like, really? What? <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing for you guys to say. And so effectively, it's a leasing business. They make these things, they lease them. And the return on the lease was 24%. So Shabbatazan and I are sitting there going, wait a second. So it's trading at 12 cents on the dollar for inventory. It's got a cash flow that you know you can't get anywhere else unless you're like running a credit card company. And we would own 100% of this business. I remember the day we looked at each other and we said, well, let's just buy it all. <laughs> we don't have to work anymore. We'll just be clipping coupons like these guys do. And it was a very typical conversation. And as we met with management and understood there, these guys were there to make money. I'm like, well, the best thing you could do is buy your own stock. You want to make money, buy your own stock. And of course, then we started competing with them for stock. <laughs> but, so we didn't tell it to them right away. I think we bought 10% first. But after the first major natural disaster, the big earthquake, they were wildly profitable. I mean, embarrassingly profitable. And it was kind of a problem because it's, you don't want to let everybody know you're making money during a time of national disaster. So when they announced earnings, it was a big number, but then they turned around at the same time and projected forward earnings as flat to the previous year. And of course, the stock plummeted. The stock was down like, I don't know, 10, 15% like on that. And we're like, okay, that was kind of the wrong message. So they didn't have an IR department at all. And so the next day we contacted Yanosan, who's the CFO, and kind of had a conversation with him. And said, so, you know, there's no problem with anything that you said, but you have to understand how the market's going to react to that. They think that your trajectory of earnings is going to drop. Maybe what you should do is start a share buyback program now. And within 
I don't know, a week, they launched their first ever share buyback program. So at that point, we knew that they were taking what we said very seriously. They understood that we were not the enemy. We were there to help protect the company, the share price, and that launched a series of share buybacks. And the shares, I can't remember back after that, I think it was a thousand yen or 1100 yen at that time. And, you know, we're 9,000 yen now. We've owned this company for probably close to 10 years now, and it's up 10 times. And that's way better than looking for the next snowflake every day. So I'm curious, as you've gone through these iterations, both with changes in the Japanese equity markets, and as you mentioned from when you started, changes in, say, the hedge funds that were coming in, what's happened over the years with your investor base? They've shifted substantially from high net worth, family office, and fund of funds to very large institutional investors, sovereign, public pensions, private pensions, endowments, healthcare. I think the understanding that we're not fund for traders people who are like moving in and out of funds every couple of years. If your mandate is wealth accumulation over five years, over 10 years, longer, we're the kind of place that looks at that as our mission. We can't care about monthly P&L. We're looking for a general annual increase in the overall portfolio value. And that's the kind of investor that has matriculated to us over the past decade. Japan over the last, I don't know, 20 plus years has been mired in this effectively zero interest rate environment that we're now seeing around the world. And I'm curious what you've learned about how companies have responded to that over a prolonged period of time. Japan's the first mover in just about everything, so. It's actually helped us think about the rest of the world because the old MMT and concepts that you can't have debt to GDP soaring over 100% without some impact on the economy. It's like, well, I don't know. It's been going on for a pretty long time here and life in Japan gets better and better because costs keep going down. I think a lot of companies are less impacted and I don't want to say they've gotten lazy, but everybody's long cash. So if you're a corporate and long cash, you tend to think that, well, cash is free. I mean, we, we just were able to steer management of Zuiko, which is one of our big portfolio companies. They're building a new factory. And they were like, they got tons of cash on the balance sheet and they were getting ready to go and use it. And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> go out and like borrow money, issue a bond. The money's free. Don't use our money, you know. So they went out and, for the first time ever, issued a five-year straight bond at 48 basis points. This is a company that's making money hand over fist and they can borrow money at 48 bips. They've grown so much that they way outgrew their current facilities and they were using satellite rental factories to complete works. And it's like their order backlog is... I don't know, what is it, a year, a year and a half? So if they can ramp up production, they'll make more money. 
They'll sell more product and make more money. I mean, it's classic stuff that you learned in business 101. Oh, if I can make more than my cost of funds, I should be expanding. So it was a good conversation we had with them. I mean, we helped put the new president into the company and move the family out, which let me tell you, that's no small feat. So as you look at the competitive investment landscape today, where do you see small cap value players, other activists across Japan? Clearly, people in the past two, three years have started to really take notice and try and deploy more assets to Japan, try and shake things up. I think some of them have been successful in their one-off, two-off trades, whatever. A little bit too hostile for us, but I think the environment is a little bit more accepting of that. I don't think those players, I wouldn't necessarily call them value guys. Maybe there's some value in it, but everybody can use a different definition of value. There are a couple of balance sheet optimization transactions that might be in there, but not clear. Tokyo Dome, which is in the midst right now, yeah, it's got a lot of real estate, but it needs a lot of money to fix it. So you really need an operator to come in and do the transaction. It's not like dead money sitting there. So I think we're at that point in the cycle where people are once again emboldened to take a flyer on Japanese companies because of the general trend towards quote unquote, better governance and more openness towards control. And then Japanese companies really looking to preserve their future. And within that comes acquisitions. I want to twist your question around a little bit because the competitive landscape for us is not really other funds, it's Japanese corporations. Because other funds are great, they can go out and do things, but the best buyer and the biggest proponent of change in valuations in corporate Japan is corporate Japan. And they're out buying other companies, very successfully. So when we're looking for who may either help propel the valuations of things that we own higher or compete against us for assets we want to buy, we don't worry so much about other funds. We worry about Japanese corporates. So as you look out over the horizon, whether that's 5, 10, or who knows, maybe another 20 years for Symphony, what does it look like? 20 years, you know, hopefully in the next generation. I mean, we'll, we'll still have our hand in. The next generation will be doing their job and taking over and engaging with management. And we've been working with our guys. For, this team has been cohesive. So I think it's a place that will continue, hopefully in perpetuity, and become a real fixture in financial markets in Japan. We could see both a change and a broadening of the opportunity set as things become more competitive. Because the market itself being less willing to rationalize itself means more work for us, which is fine. But as it becomes more willing to rationalize, that creates many more opportunities for us. So I could see how the opportunities for Symphony to continue to both grow the asset base because there'll be more things to deploy it to. 
back when we started, you know, we're deploying into three, five, seven hundred million dollar market cap companies and trying to buy 10, 20 percent. And now companies of one, two billion dollar market cap size can become a target because those management teams are willing to do the things that we would have been limited to doing with smaller companies. So all of a sudden you went, well, wow, I can, I can do this with a $2 billion company because the, you know, maybe the company's grown in size since we started looking at it in terms of its market cap, but it's still damn cheap. To give you an example, when we started investing in Infomart, I remember the first day it had a market cap of $60 million. And I couldn't understand for the life of me, like, what is this? It's like a Series B round in the Valley. It's, this is a profitable company with $60 million. Let's buy all we can. The current market cap is $2.6 billion. Well, it's probably worth 5 to $7 billion based upon where Snowflake or you know, <laughs> Tesla... PDD is trading, but these kind of things where you can come in and now say, well, I can deploy $100 million into Infomart. That would have been 140% of the market cap when we started. So it's an interesting dilemma. All right, David Shabatasan, I'd like to turn to some closing questions and I'll just direct it to each of you one at a time. So Shabatasan, why don't we start with you? What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? And I have um, so many hobbies. Well, the running, for example, and I have completed more than 20 full marathon in my life. And my best time is three hours and nine minutes. And sometimes when I was running, new idea coming, popping up. So that's great and refresh myself and keep my, me in good shape. Trading. I got four kids, and the two of them are young. But between family and markets, both in Japan and international, looking at other interesting businesses. I mean, I get kind of interested in hearing, for example, Luminar, which kind of backdoor IPO'd into a SPAC. I'd looked at that company four years ago when it was still a Skunk Works project and had been thinking about it. So looking at new technology and how these new technologies are going to change what we do and how that will impact the world and productivity. And it's very interesting to hear how all these bright young minds are using technology and deploying it to problems that in our age group, we wouldn't see it as a problem. They're like, no, 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 that's stupid. <laughs> Let's fix it. David, what's your most important daily habit? Probably exercise. The whole concept of, it sounds cliche now because everybody talks about but cellular health, being you know, longevity. There's so much to do and so much to learn. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's a daily thing. At some point, it happens every day. Shabbatasan? Same. Exercising yeah, every day. Let's go for another one. Shabbatasan, what is your biggest pet peeve? Not much. Well, here and there are some small ones, but not big things as me. Maybe one thing which will give me a headache is I need to go back to Singapore and need to go through 14 days quarantine. That's a headache. You only need to do it once. Yeah. But other than that, well, this is an exciting time and Japan is changing. 
it's my pleasure that I will be still in the business and doing what we have been looking for a long time. Our dream is coming true. Dave, biggest pet peeve. Being stuck in an inefficient situation. Whatever it may be, you're just like, okay, this could go so much faster, or let's think about it this way. Why are we wasting time doing this? I mean, that that does go being stuck in traffic in a taxi. I mean, that's like, yeah. yeah. But it just becomes inefficiency that can obviously be avoided and move on to the next thing is just kind of a waste of time and bums me out. All right, Dave, what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My dad was like, hyper-focused on professionalism. One of his sayings was, professionals wait. When I was growing up, I was like, oh, Dad, what are you talking about? Professionals wait. Professionals get it done. He's like, no, no, no. They're always waiting for the other people. You know, my dad was in film business, so and when I'd go to the sets and whatnot, you'd be there at 6 in the morning, and like you wouldn't do anything till 9. I'm like, Dad, what do you have to come here so early for? He said, professionals wait. So even at Symphony, there is symphony time. And like our call was at 8 o'clock. Shibata-san and I were like logging on at 7.45 because that's just what we do. You know, like we're here, we're ready, we're professional, we're prepared. When you guys are ready to go, we're ready to go. And that's probably one of the greatest takeaways. It's something that you notice when other people don't do it. I don't want to say it's the same as inefficiency, but when other people are supposed to be professionals and they're not prepared and they're scrambling, that's, they're not professionals. Shabbat-san? To be honest with you, my parents didn't teach me anything, but I'm kind of black sheep in my family. I'm completely different. I'm the only one who went to university and make much money. So the only things I learned from parents is don't follow them. <laughs> Do your very best, always, and hope for the best. That's learned from them, not taught. All right, last one. Shibata-san, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Well, lesson I learned is always do your very best. That's a lesson. And I have been doing that. And sometimes I regret that I didn't do my very best. So do your best always. And hope for the best. Dave? Unhappy wife, unhappy life. That's a classic. No, no, no. That's happy wife, happy life. That doesn't work. Everybody thinks that works. No, 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 no. The truth is, it's unhappy wife, unhappy life. David, Shibata-san, thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was good to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 